This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome to the Urban Political podcast. My name is Hannah Hilbrand, and I'm hosting today's podcast in which we speak about cities and climate finance. I am an assistant professor of social and cultural geography at the University of Zurich, and I have the really immense pleasure to speak today to four inspiring academics. With me today, connected via Zoom, are Professor Dr. Sage Ponder. She's an assistant professor at Florida State University. Dr. Zach Taylor, a postdoctoral research fellow at KU Leuven. Professor Dr. Sarah Knuth, assistant professor at Durham University and Professor Dr. Elmer Colvin, Assistant Professor at the University of Oklahoma. These four are, of course, here because they are particularly knowledgeable on cities and climate finance. But there's also a very concrete occasion to have this conversation, namely a workshop that Zach and Emma organized. Um, and that workshop had a title that also introduced what we are tackling today, the political ecologies of housing and municipal climate finance. This workshop and lectures, which Sarah and Sage gave to accompany the workshop, brought many topics to the fore that we want to continue to debate today. So thank you so much, Zach, Emma, Sage, and Sarah for being here and engaging in this conversation. I'd like to start by asking you to briefly introduce yourselves and your research, perhaps by naming just one thing that was on your mind today regarding your research and how that relates to your work more broadly. Sage, can I ask you to start? Okay, thanks so much for that introduction, Hannah. Um, I guess one thing about my research is really trying to understand um, how racialization plays into climate finance and um, conversations around that. My PhD research uh, looked at the role of water system infrastructure redevelopment in Jackson, Mississippi, and the type of um, loans and treatment in the bond market that that city went through in order to upgrade its water system. And I'm currently looking at um, the municipal bankruptcies of Detroit and Puerto Rico kind of with the same lens through water and electric energy and uh, how much money they're having to take out to upgrade those infrastructures. Thanks. Sarah, would you mind going next? Uh, yeah, so I thank you so much, uh, Hannah and other folks. Really looking forward to talking today. Uh, yeah, I so my work looks at a, a lot of the questions we're, we'll be engaging, I think, from multiple directions. And on, on one end, I look a lot at the kind of new sectors arising as part of the green economy, but also something I'm really interested in is Uh, what happens on the kind of losing end of the green economy and especially large-scale structural devaluation. And so something I'm really looking forward to talking about, uh, I think in an ongoing way today, is how these kind of big devaluations that, uh, that we see as part of the narrative or a lot of times around climate risk and climate change are bound up in, in much more kind of omnipresent and long-term devaluations within existing urban built environments and infrastructures. Fantastic. Emma, can I ask you to please introduce yourself as well? Thanks so much, Hannah, for, for inviting me to be part of the conversation. 
Um, so my current research is at the intersection of political ecology um, and, and finance. Um, and the current project is sort of a relational comparison, looking at water crises uh, in Jakarta and Bangalore um, and asking these questions of how do real estate and finance capital shape water regimes and then how in turn do water crises such as floods but also water shortages shape real estate markets. So as a caveat, I'm looking less at climate finance directly and more at the relationship between the environment um, and speculative finance capital. Um, and this work built on my earlier uh, PhD research, which was looking at the opportunities that flood risk management um, provided developers and the city. Great, Zach. Could you please introduce your work as well? Thanks um, for the introduction, Hannah, and so nice to be here with these faces, um, for those of us who can <laughs> see and not just hear. Um, I'm interested in, in what started as a relatively simple question. I'm an urban planner turned sort of accidental uh, financial geographer, trying to understand how real estate markets um, continue to grow in places that have um, a limited future, um, places like Florida, where I'm from. Um, trying to understand why that was happening, how that was happening, and what the kind of different ramifications of that would be. Um, you know, as a child of the financial crisis, really formative moment in my, my political education, um, trying to think through, as that case taught us, how those um, processes and their impacts ripple across the globe and how to begin to unpack that. And so that meant a journey of studying um, financial innovation around climate risk within real estate and financial institutions. Um, and insurance and reinsurance markets in particular. Um, today or lately, I'm thinking a lot about how institutions construct value, um, economic value, but other forms of value against climate risk and how that mobilizes um, or, or enables or facilitates forms of action in, in property markets in places like Miami or Singapore, where I do research, but also within financial institutions that are um, trying to protect their bottom line, respond to regulatory pressures, um, and so forth. So it's that question, that relationship between value and risk that um, is really alive for me lately. Thanks a lot, Zach. These introductions already give us a lot of themes that would allow us to debate all afternoon. Um, but I've previously made some notes to sort them a bit and maybe allow us to bring them together here. So Emma, in your work, we can see how speculation with real estate projects is driving the water crisis in Jakarta. And speculators appear to do that in ways that further aggravate the city's chances of long-term survival. And yeah, at the same time, you show how the overexploitation of water also threatens the viability of real estate. And when I read through your work, I get a real sense of how, how further urban development efforts uh, yeah, maybe we can call it on the edge of being viable at all. Um, and I think this theme fits into Zach's work on the necessity of reinsurance mechanism needed to keep real estate speculation going to continue the viability of the next spatial fix. And then looking at some of Sarah's work, um, for instance, Sarah, your APA paper on planetary repair, we get some insights onto the other sides of these processes, um, for instance, um, the production of stranded assets and the decay of urban infrastructures when, when infrastructures are no longer considered to be financially viable. And when looking at Sage's work, I think we have a 
a good outlook on the particular vulnerabilities these processes create in some places. So taking these topics together, I want to suggest um, to start by debating this tension between, on the one hand, climate threats causing the devaluation of the built environment and thereby also making financial strategies unviable. So for instance, if we look at how the devaluation um, by multiple disasters, by wildfires, by hurricanes, storms, destroy financial assets, and then also, of course, erode returns. And then on the other hand, um, disaster capitalism opening up new strategies of extraction by profiting from climate threat. So financial risk management practices that allow for continuous speculation also open up new markets on the back of decay. And, and they also keep speculation going just a bit further. So I think this tension puts a lot of questions on the table. How much further can this go until finance itself becomes unviable? So or when and where are we seeing the limits to financialization? And I mean, not theoretically here, but the financial and also the social material limits. And then what are the multiple strategies by finance and, and also by state actors to push these limits into the future and continue to profit from climate change just a bit further? And, and of course, the final question is what happens when finance is no longer viable? So my suggestion would be to first look at um, financial risk management strategies that allow for continuous speculation with the built environment and um, I would like to suggest, um, Zach, in your work, you bring in this notion of fixing the fix. Um, I would like to suggest we start with you introducing this idea. Sure. So the idea of fixing the fix is um, referring back to a, a really seminal theory um, from David Harvey, um, a, a geographer who's interested in how and why, um, and theorizing how and why capital moves into the built environment in moments of crisis. And the short kind of argument here is that, um, you know, capital finds um, a, a solution to various problems of accumulation um, in investing in cyclical ways in the built environment, right? Capital moves into infrastructure, into real estate. Um, we, we can see examples of that um, today in how um, and why money moves into the real estate sector as a safety deposit box, um, as say uh, economic performance um, uh, in this, the quote unquote real economy falls behind. So there's this idea here that the built environment plays a really important role in capitalism, in managing capitalism, right? So we're putting money into the built environment and yet at the same time, we see that that, that built environment is vulnerable to climate change, to devaluation, to disruption. So it destabilizes the fix. So this question emerged from my fieldwork um, as a PhD student, trying to understand how and why it was that Florida, a place that is so vulnerable to sea level rise, tropical storms, and other climate risks, how it could continue to grow despite growing recognition of this problem, right? We know that Miami will be underwater, large swaths of it um, within decades, easily within the lifetime, not just of a building, but of the kind of financial products which are constituted through that building. So how, how was it that that risk could be ignored? How was it that that risk um, could, could potentially disrupt um, the kind of uh, financial patterns that, which are constituted through, through the built environment? Um, and so that's where I came back to this idea of a fix for the fix, right? How is it that the financial system resolves that contradiction so that 
this kind of spatial fix can continue, right? How so that we can continue to to invest in and draw value um, through the built environment. And I'm happy to expand on how that's articulated in the Florida con uh, context um, through new forms of financial innovation. But I think that the answer to that question is actually going to vary, right? There's going to be different types of fixes for the fix, uh, which we can find in other places and other geographies. Hopefully that helps as an intro. Absolutely. Emma, in the workshop, we were talking about how different finance can play out in so-called southern geographies. How do you see this idea of the fix for the fix playing out in Jakarta? Yeah, I was actually just thinking, um, as Zach was providing us that nice overview of the similarities in the kinds of questions that we've come to our field sites with. Um, so having worked in Jakarta for the past um, seven years now, I've been looking at the kind of contradictions around flood management. Um, and so flooding is a huge issue for Jakarta and they've invested in infrastructure, but a large part of the financing for that is expected to be provided by the private sector. Um, and essentially this has transformed what should have been a relatively straightforward um, infrastructure project to protect the city from coastal flooding into a land uh, reclamation and, and urban development project. Um, and so that sort of posed the exact same question that Zach had in relation to Miami, like how is the city consider, uh, continuing to grow, particularly in the coastal area and in the Bay of Jakarta, which is one of the most ecologically precarious areas of the city? Um, how is it continuing to grow despite rights Uh, rates of land subsidence of up to 20 centimeters a year. Um, and so my work is in a way looking at uh, how environmental and financial risks sit alongside each other, or maybe at times actually become um, disconnected from one another, such that the real estate industry operates on the basis of this imaginary of Jakarta um, as a kind of place to sink capital, like a capital sink, um, this kind of growing, vibrant, world-class city. Um, Yet at the same time, there's this very powerful circulating imaginary of Jakarta as the sinking city. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very interested in looking at how those imaginaries um, kind of rub up against each other. I, I kind of want to circle this question around and ask each one of you. <laughs> um, Sarah, in, in your work, particularly um, this EPA piece on planetary repair, you speak a lot of decay and about decay and decaying infrastructure and at the same time as retrofitting being a market. Um, can, can you expand a little bit on how that feeds into kind of this idea of fixing the fix, um, how that is also a fix for limits to financial expansion? Yeah, and there's, there's obviously a lot there, but... Um... Yeah, I mean, I think something that, you know, that's animated me a lot as I think I come at this from different questions, I think, but I think we're all, you know, in some ways, we end up having similar conversations, because we're dealing with, in some ways, a strikingly similar set of circulating tools that that have been disseminated across different urban contexts. And so some of what I've been interested in, I mean, I came at I came at this question because I was interested in climate change mitigation and looking at energy efficiency retrofitting as, as a practice. Um, and certainly, you know, the the motivations that kind of inspired me to get into this were much more on the sense of, you know, the kind of original articulation of a Green New Deal. Some of the original conversations in the 2000s around 
you know, the ecological fix, you know, this other question of how the spatial fix often gets brought in in terms of climate change, which is around, you know, the kind of, you know, much more global threat of climate change uh, to the accumulate, you know, the kind of ongoing reproduction of capitalism full stop. So, you know, all of the kind of, you know, place specific threats that we look at, but then also, of course, the question of, you know, large scale uh, stranded assets uh, associated with devaluation of fossil fuels as a sector. And so how all of these distinct climate crises in specific places add up to large scale new threats to, you know, both the, the kind of financial system and its stability, but also, you know, much broader questions about the future of capitalism. So, you know, I came into questions like energy efficiency retrofitting from, from this kind of other sense of crisis and how that might be mitigated. And certainly there's a lot that I think we will start talking about around alternatives and different ways that we might imagine a project like repair of cities and ways that really don't, that can be detached, hopefully, in lots of ways from the questions of a capital accumulation and its problems that we're, we're dealing with here. But I think something that really struck me as I did this work was you know, how, how much the kind of manipulation of value is already part of the landscape when we're looking at, you know, in my case, U.S. cities, but I think some of these instruments have been disseminated elsewhere as well, you know, where it comes, you know, when we're looking, for example, at the history of urban renewal and the, the kind of origin points of some forms of gentrification um, in the U.S. context, um, and part of what I was doing with that paper is tracking the, the kind of historical conversations between the emergence of new ideas about um, energy efficiency as an asset that can be, you know, as it turns out, eventually mined from properties, perhaps in new green markets. But something that, that was always bound up in these questions of devaluation and revaluation of existing disinvested landscapes. Um, so I think without going too much into it, I, I think there is a real conversation to be had about, you know, where the tools that we are seeing um, on the ground, you know, how much they are distinct from, but also have continuities with these, these existing ways of seeing cities as places that can be disposed of. And the tools like depreciation, like all of these value manipulation tools, you know, that have already foreshortened the, the lifetimes of cities as we know them. Certainly, this is a phenomenon, you know, across East Asian rapidly developing cities as well, that they're shorter and shorter lifetime cities, even absent climate change. And that has a lot to do with these existing manipulations of value. So how do we think about the kind of tools, both of capital and finance capital and the state as very much um, aiding and abetting these practices? Yes, these are definitely important questions. Sage, do you want to pick up on them? I can tell you a little bit about how I see that playing out in my field research, um, which is um, like Zach mentions, I think um, the way these unfold is differs from context to context. So um, the cities that I've been studying, thank you, Sarah, for that, like, um, I guess, kind of like umbrella overview. I don't want to say macro because it's like still very much embedded in local context and stuff like that. But you're like identifying the fact that these common themes are running through 
cities all over the place. And then um, Zach kind of like grounded um, their work in Florida. And uh, my work is dealing with uh, black majority cities in the United States, but also majority minority areas um, like Puerto Rico as well. So Latinx majority. And basically what I saw is there's this um, common kind of refrain um, in the climate justice movement that black and brown communities are the ones that are um, hit first and worst by climate change. And so as I was doing my research, um, I kind of wanted to see how that was um, playing out in regards to um, municipal finance, right? So um, there are all these uh, upgrades that need to be done in cities like all over the world, I imagine, but especially um, my research is located in the U.S. and the the conversation around upgrading infrastructure in the U.S. is due to like years and years of underfinancing and neglect um, the transition from kind of like a supportive federal state apparatus to a very much neoliberal urbanism where everything has to be financed by the cities instead of um, at higher scales. And so a lot of cities are faced like trying to finance these stipulated upgrades to their water systems um, or other kind of like retrofitting areas. Um, in Puerto Rico, it, this was like sped along because of Hurricane Maria <clears throat> really causing a lot of devastation. But what they're facing when they go to borrow money for these very necessary, very urgent upgrades is um, a lot of kind of exploitative interest rates in the bond market due to um, like racialized histories being caught up in their credit ratings. So what credit ratings capture are these kind of um, histories of disinvestment. And so by virtue of having these racialized histories, they continue to be charged higher interest rates. Um, and so that's how I started looking like, uh, that's like what caught my eye originally. But then when cities, um, Jackson, Mississippi has not had to file for bankruptcy, but along with that, what these kind of exploitative um, loans and bonds for necessary infrastructure, um, they get folded into these larger processes of bankruptcy where people who are having to, you know, kind of get into the really messy business of breaking down um, bankruptcy like proceedings, there's still even money to be made in that process. So um, like how the bankruptcy is unfolding um, in Puerto Rico, for example, so far the only like um, uh, debt that's been kind of restructured was um, restructured for 98 cents on the dollar. So they still owe uh, like essentially everything um, for the only part that's been restructured. Um, Part of the dealings in Puerto Rico for the bankruptcy is the privatization of the energy grid. Also, it's going to be runoff of natural gas. So it's like not only are they getting these exploitative interest rates to begin with, but then when they can't pay the interest rates, they file for bankruptcy, then that's like an, another entire opportunity to um, drive the conversation um in ways that benefit, you know, these uh, fossil fuel interests or these financial interests and so on and so forth. So I see like, I mean, in terms of the question of your the limits to financialization, I'm not really seeing like how like 
I'm not really seeing limits right now. I'm seeing like we're turning um, we're turning it into opportunities. Uh, so yeah, that's that's where my research is taking me and in terms of what I'm seeing on the ground in these cities. Maybe one of the ways in which we are seeing these limits, um, and it's useful to draw on political ecology here, is to think about unruly natures um, and the ways in which, um, you know, floods, for example, pose threats to to opportunities for capital accumulation. Um, And maybe we're not quite seeing that yet in places like Miami where we would expect to see it. Um, But I do want to unpack a little bit what are the ways in which um, nature kind of exceeds financialization and escapes its kind of grasp. Yeah, I think I had a similar question as Emma too. I mean, I think a lot of us came up in this era of, you know, the expansion of carbon markets everywhere and red plus schemes and, you know, all these kind of, you know, it it was not only finance capital, but it was finance was in there, you know, all these kind of big promises for what green capitalism was going to do that mostly belly flopped. Right. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of these things have not particularly performed that well. And so I, I just, I guess what I wonder in a way is the, I think, and maybe Zach can actually speak to this too. I mean, there's there's this kind of sense of which, yes, we have like very evolved predators within disaster capitalism that have a lot of, you know, some better and some, you know, some, sorry, not better, but some more evolved than others ways of extracting value um, for a limited period. But I wonder about the kind of, you know, for example, are, are any places indispensable to finance itself. You know, you can imagine, you know, you can see them throwing, you know, eagerly throwing some places under the bus to extract as much as possible. But where are there places that finance cannot do that with? For example, is Miami one of those places? Is there too much, does finance have too much skin in the game to do some of the things to Miami that it's doing to Puerto Rico? I mean, my answer to that would be, to the last part of what Sarah just said would be, no, of, of, I don't think so. I don't think when you think about how, how a place is actually owned, um, who owns what and who has a financial stake in what, that um, a place like even Miami is, is indispensable to capitalism. Um, no, not well, What about Manhattan? Manhattan, now that might be different. And I think there's a lot of questions there that are not just about where economic value is concentrated, but there are other things there, attachment, um, you know, identity, understanding where people see themselves and what they value um, beyond the financial. Um, but I, I would agree with the assessment that, you know, we do see, um, you know, some forms of finance, which might be more refined at taking advantage of, you know, quite near term ways to extract as much value as possible against risk, against disaster. Um, you know, that's certainly the case in, um, in Florida, where there's a lot of parallels to the other cases that we've been talking about. Um, but you see a really tightly held uh, relationship between the real estate sector and climate risk that's, I think, distinct from other places. And that has to do with the historical development of this place, its historical urbanization, not just where Miami built and how, but how that growth was financed. Right. And the importance in this context of of um, mortgage finance, um, for those who don't know, mortgage markets, you know, in order to have a mortgage in the United States that's that's secured by the federal government, uh, you have to maintain homeowners insurance. And that is the sort of structural link between climate risk finance and real estate markets. And that's a link that exists to some extent in other places. But Florida and Miami in particular are, are what the, the global insurance and reinsurance industry calls peak peril, 
right? There's the sort of the riskiest, most well-developed, um, highest value market in the entire world. And so it's an interesting place to think about how and why that capacity to sort of try to domesticate risk, how it's evolved technologically in relationship with regulations, um, when it comes to seducing capital for that market, we can think about um, some of the limits that have appeared there. Um, all of the kind of questions that we're talking about, um, I think they definitely resonate across that case. Um, I, I'm thinking of Jakarta also being one of those places that are in some sense really sort of you describe in your work on the one hand kind of doomed and on the other hand sort of at the forefront of speculation. Like how do you see that there? I mean, are there places that are being given up? Yeah, Jakarta is an interesting one for that in that the north coast of Jakarta is kind of being described as like the final frontier for development in the city. Um, and so there have been these interesting patterns of uh, divestment and reinvestment in the city. And so in addition to the north um, and around the coastal area, Uh, development has also begun in the south and along other transportation lines. But the city itself is actually a very small area and it's confined by the ocean and then the, the mountains in the south. And so, yeah, there is this kind of contradictory process where, whereby the most precarious areas are being developed. Um, and I, I've been trying to trace the ways in which the real estate industry is responding to this. And I mentioned before identifying this kind of disconnection between financial and environmental risk. And I, I don't think it's that the developers like don't know about these huge risks to the, the future of the city, um, which people are saying is doomed because by 2050, most of North Jakarta certainly is expected to be underwater um, if the rates of subsidence continue. I don't think it's that the real estate industry doesn't know, but I am interested to learn more through my research about the ways that they manage those risks and assess them. One thing that I, I do know that developers have done in the past um, is just simple things like building up their plot of land so that the water runs off and floods somewhere else, these kind of small management strategies. Um, but speaking with property consultants, it was kind of an interesting experience because they were sort of telling me, oh, this is a conversation we should be having. <laughs> like, oh, you should you should tell people about this, you know, and it's the kind of thing that's in the newspapers all the time. So it's hard to envision that there's really that level of ignorance. Maybe it's like willful ignorance. But another thing too that is really striking to me is, is thinking about the lifetime of, of finance and the time horizons with which it operates. Um, so it, it doesn't matter to an investor if the building is there in 20 years or even 10 years if they're going to flip it or if they're just looking for a short-term investment. Like finance capital moves around really quickly. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily affected by the kind of lifetime of a city or, or even concerned with the fact that it might not be there um, in the future, which I think is really concerning when states are relying more and more on investment and finance strategies to, to do things like pay for city infrastructure and to pay for um, adaptation to climate change and other environmental threats. I want to just jump in here real quick because that's, I think, super interesting. And it's something that Sarah's definitely talked about um, in her work as well. And the way I understand this from the Miami perspective, where you know, if you do field work in Miami, even today we're in king tide season, 
you know, that's when you have these astronomically high tides on sunny days where streets are filled with water. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's surreal. You're walking outside of the rainy season on a, um, with water up to your knees next to a construction site where there's, you know, luxury Zaha Hadid designed condos, you know, coming onto market. So the contradiction is not just in the discourse in the media. I mean, it, it is literally saturating everything. And how to make sense of that, right? And what I find is that um, there's an architecture of deferral here, right? And there's so many kind of complex interdependencies here between different types of stakeholders and actors, which enable everyone to sit in this surreal space where they're, they're materially confronted with the limits of their processes. And yet they're relying on other actors to signal back to them how to deal with that. And, you know, the way that that it's articulated in Florida is, you know, a developer saying that that's for the state to deal with. It's for their insurer to price. It's for their consumer to to uh, factor into how they value that asset. And and when we talk to anyone in this this sort of ecosystem, these stakeholders, um, even thinking, you know, talking to the, the, you know, the Dutch uh, investor who runs a pension fund investment fund that's you know pumping money into Miami real estate through an asset manager but these complex architectures um, through which money moves through the built environment and that 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 complexity and opacity that has been designed into this system enables people to sort of defer responsibility despite the signals becoming stronger and stronger and stronger and I think that's how partly how we answer that question of wait how can this continue to happen when it's right in front of our face. And I think, um, you know, working through Miami, but talking in other geographies, having these conversations thousands and thousands of miles away from Miami, but about Miami has helped me to understand how, you know, we get these very particular configurations of of finance um, and the state and risk and materiality, but, but, our system has just become so complex for financing through the built environment, um, financing real estate that we're, we're enabled, uh, we're, we're ending up in these kind of situations. That's how I would explain it or interpret it. If that makes sense. Just to jump in there. I also think though that um, location plays a really big factor here in terms of where these kind of experiments in climate finance are originating from, where the investors, like what their material day-to-day life is, um, almost always not living in the places that they're investing in that are at um, risk for climate change. So their sense of time, especially in like for decades and decades, we've been in an extremely low interest um, kind of environment. So the search for yield is coming from places and people in parts of the world that are not experiencing climate change as such yet. It's just not real to them in a material sense. And so they're continuing to invest in and use as kind of ex- experiments in finance and um, climate mitigation, uh, these these types of areas that we're looking at, like Puerto Rico, like Florida. Um, I mean, Detroit is the site of the largest or one of the largest freshwater bodies um, in the world, I think, definitely in North America. And yet um, they're still like having problems with paying their water and things like that, because these investors are not seeing the effects of their investments and their experiments and kind of um, finance and and what the impacts of them are in everyday life. 
I think Sarah was going to jump in. I saw you getting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this, this is such a great question. And I, I actually just wanted to ask what folks thought and, and maybe Emma, Emma has some, some thoughts on Bangalore here, but just to kind of bring in California, this is, this is where I really get interested in California because I think it is one of these locations where you do see, you know, some of this, this, this yield in need of this, this giant pool of money that, that has continued to circulate since the financial crisis in, and long before that, arguably, you know, if you look at people like Rob Brenner on the generation of the subprime crisis, um, you know, and the longer, you know, that this is arguably something that's unspooled in various ways since the, the dawn of neoliberalism, right? And, and only grown worse since the, you know, since the subprime crisis. But I mean, I think there is this question of both, you know, what does it mean when a place like California is affected by this and the kind of, um, and, and I think towards my earlier question about the kind of indispensable, are there indispensable places, I think speaks a little bit to something that I've been chewing on for a while on my, some, especially in some of my other work on, you know, how are we to interpret this in terms of capitalism, full stop, you know, thinking about the macro again, you know, if a lot of this is billed as novelty, this is billed as what the green economy is, in a lot of ways, it's it's these financial models, it's these financial experiments, they're sold to us as a genuinely novel frontier of accumulation. This is the fifth industrial revolution or fourth or whatever you call it. Um, I do wonder if this is a weakness that isn't even captured by the kind of critiques of the Financial Stability Board disclosure regime on, you know, the that that kind of area of breakdown in finance, financial governance. If this is a deeper kind of crisis of capitalism, full stop, that is not being solved by these vulture capitalist experiments everywhere. You know, if, if they're not actually producing anything, they're just move. you know, it's a movable feast of crises around the world. Um, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, a full stop, and I'd love to hear what people think, because um, I have a lot of questions without answers on it. But then also, what does that mean? You know, is Bangalore totally indispensable or is Silicon Valley totally indispensable if, you know, if California becomes unlivable, which is, you know, on the table in certain ways right now um, around climate risk. So like what if we're thinking about, you know, all of the failed, the failed attempts to kind of recreate grow, really real growth centers, real economy growth centers for capitalism. You know, how many places have tried to export Silicon Valley and failed and failed and failed? you know, are we actually seeing deeper weaknesses developing there? Because the only model of capitalism that we have is this is the disaster and, and extraction from it. That's all. It's my question, a simple question. I mean, isn't the answer to that, you know, well, that that's that, yeah, it's complicated, right? So we're all at least partially trained as geographers on, on this call. So we might have some affiliations to other fields too, but, you know, I try to think about answering that question by looking within places, but also between them, right? We know as, as geographers that there are these kind of complex interdependencies, you know, can there be a Silicon Valley without a market for the thing that Silicon Valley produces? Can there be a Silicon Valley without, you know, the labor market that builds the products that they sell. There are so many interdependencies here that I find it very hard to speak about indispensable places. I also think it's really tough to see, um, and I open this up to everybody, but you know, how do we cease this uh, systemic risk? I mean, I definitely have lots of questions and observations about the limits of the kind of regulatory regimes, which are trying to, to screen and sift and price and value all of the different types of, of risks in the financial system as they relate to climate change. 
And I can imagine how things add up in various ways, but I also look to places and, and even within Miami or New York or any of these other, um, you know, relatively prosperous places that are seen as so central to this conversation, it's very easy to see how this all falls apart in those places too, within them, in the, the inequalities within those places, how there are, to, to borrow um, Lee Johnson's phrase, forms of splintering protectionism that um, are produced and reproduced through these innovations in finance, which really pull apart places, right? So I wonder at what point places fall apart too, right? Um, the kind of inequalities that, that um, might be deepened by forms of climate finance ultimately destabilize the political economies of the very places that this finance is supposed to protect. So to, to sum up, you know, I think it depends. Are we looking at places? Are we looking at relationships between places? I think they both offer important ways of trying to get at that question. Um, and like all of this, it's just so, you know, damn empirically complicated that it, it's, it's really tough to, to answer that in a succinct way. That's my two cents. Thank you, Sarah. Kuli Zak, for bringing these very big questions down to the level of the city. So let's zoom in even further and look at how these contradictions we are discussing play out on the level of the city's built environment. What are the material landscapes that you see emerging from these limits that we are discussing? Well, I've, I've been talking a lot, but here's an easy, an easy one. I mean, it's it, this is something I was thinking a lot about when I was looking at, um, you know, like energy efficiency markets. So you know, this is this is one of the areas of the green economy that is arguably not disaster capitalism. You know, we may not believe in it as green capitalism. I think there's lots of ways to. To, to interpret it, but it, it's not um, it's not overtly about extracting from from you know those on the margins, but uh, but yet you know we're talking about so you know the basic market here is we're talking about you know new ways of saying you know you you invest in your building you repair your building um, you know or an investor invests in a building to repair it. And there should be a way of actually, you know, marketing that, internalizing that to the market, treating the the property that has been bettered by these interventions as more valuable because of that, because it is more durable, you know, and something that really, you know, I think this is where one of these areas where if you only look at the intervention itself, you look at the building that has been bettered, um, you know, that of course presents lots of questions because, you know, you're saying, you know, there's been an investment in the fabric of a building. Does that actually reflect the the kind of, you know, emission significant energy generating or producing activity or consuming activities within that space? Yes, maybe, but not necessarily. You know, then there's a broader question when you look at the, the urban landscape and saying, well, yes, you may have made this building better for a while, but if you're going to just demolish it, you know, as part of an urban, you know, the kind of urban renewal 3.0 scheme, um, you know, to come, are, are you really not, you know, actually addressing the larger materialities of what the generation and disposal of built environments looks like? So, you know, it's a very narrow market creation mechanism that I think, grossly underestimates the kind of ongoing destructive patterns in which it's trying to intervene. So, you know, on a very small scale, yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing that gets undermined here. Yeah, I mean, I can speak real quick to the kind of contradictions of insurance markets. Um, you know, in theory, insurance is designed to protect an asset from devaluation because of a disaster or some sort of it doesn't need to be a, a disaster, but some sort of process that, that can devalue that, that asset. And 
one of the contradictions here is as risk is priced into insurance markets um, that we're going to see policyholder premiums go up, you know, the cost of insurance goes up and there reaches a point where that produces an affordability problem that can become, I think, quite profound, or it produces a, a profitability problem for insurance companies if there are efforts to stimulate those price increases. So we run into this contradiction between affordability and profitability, which speaks to a limit. And how those things are balanced in process uh, or in practice, I think, is, is a really interesting thing that's worth studying when we think about you know, climate finance or green finance in general. But the contradiction here, the big one, is that this financial mechanism, which is supposed to make an asset more secure, can in fact um, hasten its devaluation by way of its the, the the its the inaffordability or the unaffordability that it produces, right? And so there's a contradiction there that's not so different when we try to um, rein in these kind of ecological processes and fix them into pricing. Um, yeah, I see a, a very clear material contradiction there that has to do with this specific financial mechanism, the types of assets it protects. Of course, there are questions about where that market doesn't work. You know, when we talk about homeowners insurance, for example, we're talking about people who own houses, not people who rent houses, who are simply just not even included in that market. So there, there are lots of ways of thinking about the materiality of, of these instruments and, and their limits. And I think that's super valuable. And I see a kind of cross-cutting set of contradictions here, right? A sort of um, a self-destructive impulse within this kind of attempt to mine as much value as possible um, from the very things that, that these financial instruments are meant to protect or enhance um, or retrofit or repair. So, yeah, I, I was like taking time to digest your um, question, Hannah. And um, what I like, I'll tell you kind of what I talked about in um, my talk for the workshop that we were all a part of. Um, and then I'll, I want to bring in, you know, kind of this, an example of a, of a contestation of, um, of the limits to financialization. And I'd like to throw that question back out to the group, like, like, um, Zach, what are the, you know, kind of how are the limits of, you know, the reinsurance market, like being contested if they are like how on, you know, at what level does that happen? Um, but basically in brief, my example, so it's more clear what I'm talking about is, um, yeah. So in Puerto Rico, I, um, told you guys, um, so for listeners there, I was taking a Spanish, um, an intensive Spanish uh, course when I was there just to help along my research. And uh, there's this guy that was also taking the course who worked for like a construction slash engineering firm that specialized in emergency kind of disaster response. And he missed class one time. And he, when he came back the next day, he was like, Oh yeah, I had to go assess the building um, for my firm, but it was too damaged for us. So we didn't take it up. Um, and I kind of took, that is like, um, you know, if these firms that are being subcontracted by FEMA to come um, help Puerto Rico and other like disaster areas recover, if the buildings are too damaged for these firms to take up to repair and rebuild, um, they're just being left there, right? So you see in um, Puerto Rico, I wasn't there for very long, about a month, but you see these spots, these bright spots that have been 
kind of fixed up and rehabilitated. And then right next door, you'll see these um, buildings that are still um, just kind of um, totally damaged and not repaired at all from the hurricane. And on top of that, like there are some other kind of policy responses. Um, so that's kind of like on, on the one hand, I saw this like engineering construction firm as uh, you know, um, taking advantage of rent gaps as um, a means to kind of um, stabilize their profit margins and still like getting kind of street credit for being like, oh, we're emergency disaster response specialists. We help people. We're the good guys. Um, and so that's the one hand. But on the other hand, you see all these all these buildings, not necessarily hotels. I didn't see anything there. But in particular with schools, a lot of the schools were shut down by Betsy DeVos um, because, uh, yeah, she said they were like damaged beyond repair and shut them down. Um, that's that's argued. That's an, that's that's an arguable believe like false statement. Um, but so a lot of these schools have uh, kind of been abandoned and they do have, again, it's not just from the hurricane, but a lot of disre- disrepair from ages of, of being underinvested, but they're still usable. And what, what I've seen happening, um, you know, kind of under the banner of mutual aid are people from the community the community like coming back and kind of um, taking ownership of these spaces and really kind of repairing them for themselves. Like a carpenter who, um, whose uh, school that he attended, his elementary school that he attended, um, it has been closed and kind of abandoned. And um, so he's taken it upon himself to repair that building and open it back up again for spaces for um, children or workshops and things like that. So, I mean, this is on the one hand, on the one hand, I feel like this engineering firm does kind of like having thought about it a little bit more um, show like the limits of financialization or the limits of this kind of model of disaster capitalism because they're not repairing all the buildings. They're just leaving them there. Um, and on the other hand, there's there's um, contestation from communities and, and taking over these buildings and trying to repair them themselves. Um, so yeah, I just wonder if you guys see that in your own work um, at what at what scale or what level? Um, I could just quickly try to, to succinctly comment. Um, just riffing on the theme of that it all depends by geography and even within geography on like what part of the built environment you're looking at. You know, when it comes to the conversation around insurance, you see that, yeah, in places like Florida, certainly not only in Florida, actually a very similar conversation to what's happened in Florida historically around hurricane risk is happening right now in California around wildfires um, and, and the price of insurance. There is this sort of, and it's actually, it, it, it's it's really similar to, to um, observations that Sarah's made in, in her work on um, the kind of ways in which the energy efficiency boom has coincided with uh, changes in tax policy and the popular tax revolt. What you see in places like Florida are very middle-class conversations about the affordability of insurance that are really similar to conversations about the affordability of things like property tax. So it's a very specific conversation and that has a lot to do with who is touched by that market, right? And and their material um, challenges that they're facing. But it's certainly not the only place where contestation is happening. Um, another one, you know, Miami is not just a ground zero for innovation insurance. It's also a place where we look to talk about climate gentrification, which is something that, um, you know, Sage and others are also thinking about in other geographies. 
And here we see, I think, uh, I would argue, a really multifaceted process of climate gentrification um, appearing that's happening across different housing geographies in Miami. The one that gets the most attention um, has to do with the, the, the kind of conceptualized relationship between low-lying areas in Miami and higher elevation areas, um, and how patterns of property market speculation are changing. So historically, or really still today, um, the lowest elevation areas in Miami, the places on the water are the most attractive. They're where the highest value real estate is. Um, obviously, stakeholders are beginning to get um, anxious about its vulnerability to flooding, and there's an argument that they're looking to higher elevation areas, um, which are historically um, communities of color, places where immigrants live, where Miami's black community lives. Um, and they're, they're beginning to buy property in these communities, um, banking on, on their um, higher elevation and producing new patterns of gentrification. Um, it's not, I would say, the only form of climate gentrification happening in that region, but it is producing a really strong um, um, counter mobilization from community groups, which have been really actively organizing to fight displacement and to try to incorporate um, um, new mechanisms to capture the value from all of that speculation and redevelopment, to make sure it goes into affordable housing, to make sure that you know, anti-displacement analysis is done, to make sure that um, not just in these communities at the project level, but across the entire community that patterns of, of maybe displacement or, or um, you know, changing housing geographies um, are responsive so that, that principles of equity are included. So that say folks are displaced from you know, Little Haiti um, and have to go to other parts of the county that, that might be um, less accessible to the center or to community resources, you know, that investments in transit are happening so that there is some semblance of fairness as Miami is, is shaken up as capital moves away from the coast um, to new areas. So yeah, you do see, I think, really interesting and very different forms of um, critique and um, organizing happening in different corners. And again, it comes down to um, how particular patterns of capital touch, I think, different corners of the city. I actually wanted to ask uh, Zach a question about uh, this concept of climate gentrification. I think this is really interesting as someone that works in Jakarta to see this conversation emerging around primarily in the, you know, the so-called global north, we'll just use those shorthand terms for now. Um, there's a lot of conversation around ecological gentrification or climate gentrification. Um, and there's also this parallel pattern in places like Jakarta where increasingly evictions uh, are being carried out for reasons that are largely about environmental interventions, right? So evictions to facilitate flood mitigation, um, to facilitate the creation of green parks, or perhaps even rehabilitating water retention spaces. Because there's, there's been scholars like, you know, Asha Gertner who have critiqued that concept in the context of, of India, um, but I think it has a lot of utility still. I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about um, how you see that concept as being useful. I mean, there's a lot to be said about gentrification debates. You know, this is one of the formative concepts in, in our field and something that we're always debating. Um, there are two things that are alive for me right now, and that's not to say that other things don't matter, but there are things that, that I'm really interested in this debate that I think are relevant to this conversation in particular. One has to do with 
again, to come back to that question of value and how value is constructed in relation to risk. And here, to come back to gentrification, I'm thinking about um, rent gap theory, right? This idea that there's a relationship between the current value of, of something and its future value, um, and that gap is what mobilizes um, or, or shapes patterns of investment or disinvestment in the built environment. So the question here is how is climate risk valued in the built environment and how does that change patterns of investment or disinvestment? So that's one thing I'm interested in by a gentrification debate, um, that question of value. And then the second, I think, which is the most, maybe the most important one is the question of displacement, right? So what are the mechanisms of displacement and how is displacement um, managed or, or, or um, um, contested, right? And I think these are, I, I, it's, quite a simple answer, but the, the enduring parts of that conversation that really, really matter uh, and that are really useful to what we do. Uh, whether or not we want to call it gentrification or not, you know, we're ultimately interested in how efforts to manage climate risk, be them through finance directly or indirectly through things like physical infrastructure investment, produce things like displacement, right? So those are the two things that um, I find myself coming back to in that debate right now. Yeah, I guess, I mean, something I, I keep on chewing on this too, I, and I guess related to elements of Asher's critique probably as well, but but this question of where the state is in all of this. And I, because, you know, obviously, you know, one of the reasons to kind of qualify how we talk about gentrification in as we bring in more context is to think about, well, how much of this is happening, displacement happening by fiat via the state and the state just doing this um, and not, you know, the kind of, the indirectness of gentrification being kind of peeled away and revealing the real relations of force behind all this. Um, and I just, I keep on wondering about this, you know, in terms of, you know, both on a more macro sense as kind of the limits to the spatial fix to the spatial fix, perhaps, um, you know, and I'll get back to that in a second, but I think the, one of the questions I have is, is on this, you know, if, if more, you know, more, more insurance is being kind of, turned over to the state, even though, you know, the, the existing state where networks were dealing with this are in shambles or increasingly so, you know, and more, you know, more mortgages are being turned over to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, you know, what is, you know, if this, the state is becoming a kind of investor of last resort in these places or being charged with managed retreat, managing managed retreat in these places, you know, where is the kind of outside state kind of moving in even more, kind of visibly, you know, and then, and I think the bringing in, you know, kind of what I was getting at before on, on, on the kind of broader crisis of capitalism already. Um, I mean, I think this is where the kind of the limits to the spatial fix to the spatial fix really matter because, you know, if we're thinking about, you know, and obviously Harvey's brought this in in lots of ways and it's a complex concept and it's a messy one in lots of ways, but, you know, if we're thinking about the classic spatial fixes, they did stabilize capitalism. They did successfully stabilize capitalism for a while, if we're thinking at least of kind of New Deal era stuff. They saved capitalism from its own tendency to ravage itself. And none of the things we're talking about seem likely to do that. I mean, and that's where I think different versions of a green recovery or a green New Deal become really interesting, you know, no matter, even though there's many, many flavors of this that we're talking about. But I mean, I think this is, this is, as the kind of state keeps on moving central to this because finance is not solving these, pro these broader structural problems, I mean, doesn't this give us many, many opportunities for imagining all this differently? I think that brings us to the conclusion. I mean, we had on the table the topic of resistance and also 
now, Sarah, you picked up this topic of imagining like different futures and bringing in the Green New Deal. I mean, I think that's also one way to go about, about that question. Sometimes if I, if I engage in that conversation, I'm wondering a bit how much that solution can be one for cities or for states that don't have that kind of very strong state or that state with muscles, such as, for instance, the UK or the US. Emma, how do you see that? I mean, what, what's, what would the role of the state be in Jakarta and difference? Like, how do you see the state in managing these crises of water flooding in Jakarta? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's made a little bit more complicated by the fact that Jakarta is at least for now the capital city. Um, and so there's the provincial uh, government of Deki, Jakarta. Um, and then there's the national government, which is involved with the management of some of the rivers. And so that's that's kind of complicated to figure out whose responsibility these, these different kind of watersheds are. The city has sought to implement... Uh, essentially infrastructural fixes to a lot of the problems that they have around um, water, uh, well, around flooding. And then the issue with um, water privatization um, that that recently um, has been overturned, or that was challenged rather by um, some civil society groups who uh, referenced the constitution of Indonesia, which declares the water is a human right. Um, they've had, Just I mean, there is a really fascinating case study of the failure of water privatization. So initially the water network was constructed by the Dutch during the colonial era. Um, and then the 90s under President Suharto, under recommendation of the World Bank, it was privatized. Um, but because of the way that contract was written, uh, it's actually put the city into uh, municipal debt. Um, and at the same time, the infrastructure network, the actual pipes um, and infrastructure that delivers water to people has barely been extended at all, I think by maybe 10% or something. So there's actually a really complex kind of landscape of different actors involved with managing um, water management and flood management, which tends to be a lot of uh, foreign consultants. Koika, the Korean um, Development agency is involved, the same with Japan. There's a lot of Chinese capital as well. That's that's more with um, tra uh, transportation projects. Um, so that that's sort of one aspect of this. Um, something else I was going to add. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, so with the, the way that I see the state most involved, there's a couple of ways. So one is uh, via the various policy changes um, that have essentially facilitated speculative finance. And these go back to, to the 80s. Um, and so there's that, that, there's that kind of creating a, an environment that's attractive for investors. That's been a, a long-term effort of the Indonesian state. Um, but the other is uh, to be on the ground actually carrying out some of these um, evictions. Um, and it's not necessarily the case that these communities are being evicted in order to facilitate some kind of urban development project. But that's also not, not the case. <laughs> um, and so I'm thinking in particular of Kampung Aquarium, where people have, uh, they were forcibly evicted in 2017. Um, and people basically refused to leave. Um, and so that was a really contentious eviction. Um, and there's been a lot of organizing around that. Uh, and the point is to say it wasn't totally clear, at least to me, why they were being evicted um, besides, you know, the normal argument that they were illegally occupying uh, state land. 
and that that's in North Jakarta where there's a lot of as I mentioned before investment um and Jakarta I guess North Jakarta it sounds like sort of a microcosm of Miami <laughs> like there are all these incredible um huge kind of apartments and and houses landed houses with absolutely wild kind of security um infrastructure around them so like huge brick walls and gates and so on and there is this uh there's a large kind of uh, wealthy population now living in in north jakarta around pluit but at the same time it's also the area where there's the city's poorest people and so that's that's really a place where these different agendas and different visions of like living in the city come together um and so it's you know you can go into these develop developer showrooms um and see all of these models of you know green and blue and steel and these kinds of imaginaries of north jakarta that are totally at odds with um a lot of people's experiences there um and so that that's the way i primarily see the state involved in in that particular case is through institutional changes and kind of supporting and facilitating finance capital and then the material practice on the ground of um essentially clearing out the poor i wanted to move the conversation in direction towards resistance and imagination and what we're moving towards with the conversation is now the complete opposite direction speaking about more repression <laughs> so that wasn't that wasn't as intended um i i could have i could have thought of that um but still let's stick for a second with this question of resistance i mean we can tackle that in two ways I, let's think a bit about like what we as academics need in terms of like opening up new imaginations to to understand better these limits but also understand possibilities that might emerge out of it really also thinking ahead in kind of a political sense that Uh, open up imaginaries that can also help people on the ground struggling, climate gentrification, um, and all the rest of it. I'm not sure, Sarah, you're, I'm thinking of your programmatic piece in City, where you're opening up so many imaginations and new thoughts um, for new debates to open up. Do you want to maybe speak a bit about that? Oh, gosh, I can go first. <laughs> no, it's, I, I think there's, there's a lot there. Um, I mean, I think it's a really... I guess if if I had to say one thing that I would like to see stop happening in in this space, full stop. I'm so sick of the financing gap as as this default narrative of choice. It's it's a resources gap. Yes, for sure. We need to we need the resources to solve some some you know actually significant material transformations to the cities we have. Um, But the, the inevitable turn to the existing financial system is, is one of the kind of restrictions of imagination that I think we have to fight as hard as we can. And, and, in, you know, and certainly I think in critiquing what is and saying, you know, what are, what are the lines of development that we see this argument leading to? Where, what kind of cities do they produce? What's even now and what are they imagining? What are the, what are, you know, what is as, as, as you in your work, Hannah, what are the kind of ideal utopian or dystopian cities that they imagine themselves, but how do we do it differently? I mean, and this is, I think your, your point is really well taken, Hannah, about the kind of, you know, the place specificity of things like a Green New Deal and like, you know, green investment authorities, you know, very different models of how one might produce resources for some of the, the transformations that we want to see. I think you're right that there's there's a really hard conversation to have about the kind of existing colonial relationships that might get reproduced 
via even even very well-intentioned ideas like modern monetary theory and saying we really have to think we think the kind of freedom of action of states and and how much states self-constrain around these austerity imaginaries that are you know historically limited and and as we've seen very mutable and in, in case of true crises you know quantitative easing was a radical strategy and and so you know that there has been a recent history of the state acting in quite different ways um, and that we this is a this is a power to keep on expanding on but that also we have to remember that this is you know we live in a world of of complicated constraints and you know certainly we haven't talked at all for example about about china's role china's role is as an infrastructural investor in this i think something we really should talk about more because you know it's not just the washington consensus rolling out over the landscape rolling out new structural adjustment programs everywhere um as much as they probably wish they were, you know. So I think there are new ideas being forced upon states by both the conditions of crisis that we're seeing, and also kind of new ideas coming out. But I think we ourselves really do have to be thinking about what kinds of alternate forms might we see um, to meet the need, the scale and the kind of geographies of the challenge that we're actually seeing materially. Well, so I think. Um... Hopefully uh, this is moving in the direction that you want it to, but I just, I, well, I have, I have two things. I have a, a critique I'd like to make or a concern more like it's a concern coming from a very supportive corner and then a suggestion at the end um, for futuring. And I, I really love this question. I think um, one thing that financialization has done irreparable damage to is like, you know, kind of the bandwidth we have for imagining futures. And I really appreciate this conversation um, for the sake of kind of, of trying to reinvigorate this um, broadening of, of our imaginations about what is possible for the future. Um, but my, the concern that I have is like, there's so much talk and so much support, you know, for, on the left from progressive um, corners for um, the Green New Deal. And what I don't see happening to a large extent, I see like some gestures towards it, but there's not really, we're not really carrying the memory forward with us of um, the racialization of the original New Deal, right? And so um, all of these programs and policies that were part and parcel of the original New Deal um, kind of worked to reify white property values um, and uh, segregate and racialize other spaces of cities. And I don't see a real acknowledgement of that kind of violent history of the New Deal being brought forward into our conversations of a, of a Green New Deal. And uh, with my work on the racialization of urban finance, um, the largest, the 21 largest Black majority cities in the U.S. categorically are charged higher interest rates in the bond market, which um, if things go as predicted, would probably be play a large role in a Green New Deal. And so these like histories of racialization, past and present, I would really, really, really like to see um, brought into conversations about a Green New Deal. That's like my really big concern is that um, it's just going to be erased and then happen all over again. So my suggestion is, and that comes from like 
love of the idea, right? Like I really want it to work and this is why I'm afraid it won't and let's do something about it. My suggestion is the that a lot of this like futuring and kind of imaginative work um, that we're really kind of, I you know, we're insisting on people do and I want everybody to do it. But I think um, the groups and the spaces, the people in the cities that should really be at the forefront of this futuring are the places like Puerto Rico, like Miami, like um, Detroit and Jackson, Mississippi, that are at the forefront of climate change and um, financial violence. And so I would like to see and hear what their idea of the good future is like. And let's start to incorporate that into our kind of mindset and how we can build from there. Um, so yeah, so that's my that's my piece on on imagining. I just wanted to flag one point, which which stages already alluded to, which is that um, this idea of, so this idea of closing down imaginaries, this is something I see most acutely when I'm teaching. Um, and it's really interesting because students are largely unable to think about alternatives to capitalism as we have it. And I just find that's a really interesting problem to run into when you're teaching. And so oftentimes that means looking at, you know, there are other ways of being in the world and there are other economic structures and so on that are already out there. It's not like everything is, is capitalism. Um, and so I think in that sense, it's useful, like Sage said, to, to look at what people actually want. And oftentimes, like, we might not be seeing it when we're, when we're studying these things, but there are plenty of people on the ground and communities that are already enacting alternative futures. And I, I feel like it's less our job to help people imagine them and more of our job uh, to platform those imaginaries already and support those communities in bringing them to light. That's a fantastic, um, uh, that's a really fantastic point to close on. So let's, let's wrap this conversation up. What are the things, the conversation that you want to take further? What are the kind of points that you're picking up and um, would like to see develop like in new papers, in new work? What can we take out of this and into like different spaces and continue to debate? I would like to see kind of um, the expansion of the conversation of climate finance away, like green bonds are a huge part of it, but it's so much more than that, right? And so broadening our um, kind of understanding of what constitutes um, climate finance and green finance beyond just these green bonds. Yeah, to that point, you know, all finance is now climate finance. So how do we deal with that? Um, how do we think through that? And how do we hold finance to the same account that we might hold um, our, our aspirations for climate finance to account? You know, we envision climate finance doing so much. Yes, we have some critiques, we have some limits, but how do we um, bring that to bear on, on all finance. I think that's something that I want to see happen. I also want to see, not just see more conversations platforms where frontline communities are centered, but I want to see more discussion um, openly, certainly within the academy about how we do that methodologically, how we become, how do we step into that role as, um, as a platformer, as a facilitator of a conversation. Um, I really see a lot of, of what we do here as um, trying to understand and make visible how things work. And I think that's only step one, right? Step two is what you do with that understanding. How do you um, help um, make possible a political space 
in which we can do that kind of visioning together. Um, and I think that has to happen beyond the academy. And I want to see more discussion about how we step into those roles um, as, as researchers, as scholars. It's not part of our training, but it seems like such an important part of, of this conversation is learning how to do that, right? And I think that there are a lot of um, uh, wonderful examples out there. Um, and I would just, I want to see more of them. And I want to see more open contemplation of that. I'm, I'm sort of interested in thinking about how we can develop um, the conversations around climate finance, green finance, um, from the vantage point of the, the margins. Um, so as we spoke before about, you know, these alternative ways of, um, of thinking about responding to climate risk and so on, like excavating those and, and elucidating those, but also thinking about cities that might have been marginalised within urban studies. And so I'm saying this as someone that works in Jakarta. Jakarta's actually had a ton of attention recently. Um, and we have broadened the scope of cities that we look at, but I feel like we we still need to think about theorizing from those places when we talk about what climate finance is and, you know, avoid uh, the kinds of conversations that we had around neoliberalism <laughs> for the past 20 years. Um, you know, this is not going to be um, finance capital with Indonesian characteristics, right? It's it's going to be something different. And I think taking what we've learned from that kind of post-colonial turn in urban theory is going to be so important in pushing this conversation forward. Sarah? I, I don't think I could say this any better than you all have said it. It's, it's just been, it's been such a wonderful opportunity to talk with you all and, and brain expanding as, as usual. Um, yeah, thank, just thank you for, for hosting a really great conversation. Thanks so much to all of you. It was fantastic to have you here. I can, I can maybe finish by saying that um, if you want to hear much more about this conversation, um, you can also go back to Sarah and say, just talk, um, because we've recorded them and we'll put them on the Urban Political Podcast website. Thanks again to all of you. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Hannah. Such a treat. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe.